Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Now learning ancient dark space magic. Strap in folks, the nerds have arrived, bringing you the ultimate nerd podcast. Nerds, the worlds of gaming, horror, TV, and film have collided right here. This will be your finest hour. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is David. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, this week's podcast, we're breaking down the latest episode of Ahsoka, and we're also talking all the latest news in nerd culture. Plus, I'm giving you the lowdown on the Xbox leaks, and we're reviewing AEW Grand Slam. But all right, with that said, let's get into the news. Every week, we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters. We're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning, potential spoilers for upcoming shows and movies ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. All right, folks, before we get into this week's news, just a heads up, because I'm going to a concert on Thursday, finally fucking seeing Baby Metal and Death Clock, I um, had to record early, so I'll be doing you know the news alone this week, but Damon will be with me for the rest of the episode per usual, you know, for Ahsoka and wrestling, of course. Um, but anyway, first up, big updates this week for the WGA strike. Entertainment reporter David Faber took to X claiming the writers and producers are near an agreement to end the WGA strike. While they had met on Wednesday the 20th, um, reports from Deadline and more state negotiations are still going into this weekend. Faber also made claims that if a deal isn't made soon, we could most likely see this going into the end of the year. Uh, there's no word right now on you know, where SAG is with all this, You know how they stand on negotiations though so while writing may resume filming will probably stay halted until a deal with SAG is actually finalized but I'm hoping with the WGA strike coming to a possible close a deal with SAG could follow shortly but again I hope you know the WGA isn't getting you know less than what they deserve in this deal um, we will definitely keep you posted for the results next week but you know fingers crossed that you know something is actually happening uh, moving on to some you know actual Marvel news, it seems Loki season two is getting a prime time release slot on Disney Plus. Now, like me, you're probably wondering what the fuck does a prime time slot even mean when it comes to streaming? In simple terms, it's just them airing episodes for streaming at that same you know seven o'clock sweet spot for prime time viewing, as they seem to be wanting to put out Loki on Thursdays at six p.m. Pacific time, aka eight p.m. Central time for us here in Chicago, which fucking feels late, but whatever. Uh, this follows. This follows after what seems to be some successful tests for Ahsoka with their evening releases on Tuesdays. As reports say, there was a significant boost in first hour watchers. Um, personally, I'd rather you know just be dropped you know, in the morning so I can watch it as soon as possible, but I understand the logic for doing drops like this, and I wonder if this will just be Disney's continuing formula for all series going forward. In other Marvel news, it was revealed by Ford that the Marvel's film will now be the most expensive Marvel project of Phase 5. We've seen kind of a growing cost coming from each release of late, you know, from Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania clocking in at 200 million to Secret Invasion being 212 million and then Guardians Volume 3 being 250 million, and now the Marvels with a whopping 270 million. Um, officially garnishing the title of most expensive non-Avengers film to date. Hopefully though, that translates over to quality, as Disney may have to start rethinking you know, how they're doing these Marvel films if the most expensive project were to flop. I mean, 
two out of those four projects I just mentioned were some of the worst in the Marvel franchise. I'm looking at you, Ant-Man, and fucking Secret Invasion. So I'm good. I'm just gonna, you know, have to hope that this added cost has gone to the right places to make sure that you know this is a surefire hit that they can actually make a profit off of. You know, at the end of the day, I don't give a shit about Disney's profit margin, but they do, and it drives their decision making. So that's why I say I hope that there is a win in the Marvels, and we see all that money being used for something good here. But lastly for Marvel, um, industry scooper My Time to Shine Hello claimed Ian McKellen, who has been rumored to appear in Deadpool 3 as Magneto, will also star in Secret Wars. Um, we recently saw rumors for Patrick Stewart as well to be in both Deadpool 3 and having a return in Secret Wars. Um, it would be a tremendous moment for longtime Marvel moviegoers to see, you know, today's heroes working alongside the Fox, you know, X-Men era, even if it is for just like one fight sequence and would definitely be a one-up on that endgame battle sequence. How many other heroes may be actually appearing in Secret Wars? Only time will tell. In horror news, it looks like we got a release date for Smile 2. Paramount Pictures announced this week that the sequel to Smile will arrive October 12th, 2024. Just in time for Halloween, thank God. Uh, which again, it's super refreshing that all these horror movies are finally filling up the fall season now but to talk more about the film uh parker finn who directed the first film will remain on the project as the director um as paramount actually has locked him in for a multiple film contract after the massive success of the first smile film i believe it made 200 million over its original budget of 17 million, which is incredibly successful for any horror film. So that's good to hear and makes sense why Paramount would want way more from the guy. Yeah, this will be coming out October 12th, 2024. And now for the nerds breakdown of episode six of Ahsoka. Heavy spoilers ahead, you have been warned. What was first just a dream has become a frightening reality for those who may oppose us. Soon we shall all escape this exile thanks to the efforts of Morgan Elspeth. We open this week in hyperspace as the Purgle carry Ahsoka and Hu Yang hopefully to where Sabine has been taken. Ahsoka recalls Hu Yang telling her of, you know, the space whales in stories as a youngling. When Hu Yang basically asks, you know, what happened with Sabine, Ahsoka explains that Sabine chose to help Balin. Ahsoka feels, you know, personally responsible for Sabine's choices, claiming that she did not prepare her enough for that moment. But Hu Yang believes that for Sabine, that choice would have always been the same, prepared or not, as it was her only way to Ezra. Yeah, I thought this was a pretty good explanation, you know, for the choice that she made. Um, you know, if Ezra is one of the only people she has left in her life, you know, it's going to be hard for her to choose to sacrifice him, regardless if it's for the fate of, you know, the universe. Um, you know, I mean, it's pretty fucked up. I don't feel like it's a Star-Lord situation, though, like in, you know, Infinity War, where, you know, it's like after the fact, you know, Star-Lord, you know, in a fit of revenge, <laughs> uh -huh. can't control himself for, you know, a matter of seconds, um, you know, and basically, you know, costs the universe half of its lives i mean it's still fucked up and selfish but at the same time you know if it was like my daughter or something like that i'd probably do the same thing no i know i would do the same thing <laughs> <laughs> fuck all y'all <laughs> i'm like you would thanos snap oh absolutely <laughs> this whole galaxy would be screwed also before we move on so do you think 
we're literally reading like Hugh Yang's like text whenever you know that we see the Star Wars scroll now. No, I don't think. I think that was just supposed to be a cute moment. Okay, I, don't, I think it's kind of cool though. I think it's a nice like piece of lore if it actually is Hugh Yang who's like narrating all these trilogies. Like we're all the younglings learning about see? you know there Star you Wars. Go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was adorable though. I, I did like the moment. We then join Sabine locked in a cell on the Eye of Scion as it makes its final approach to Peridia. Standing outside is Balin Skull, who seems to just be checking in on Sabine. After a quick exchange about reflecting on her choices, Sabine begins to worry about Balin keeping his word, you know, about taking her to Ezra. Balin simply scoffs at this and walks off, not feeling a need to respond though. In the cockpit of the Eye of Scion, Balin explains to Morgan Elsbeth why he hasn't killed Sabine, as he believes she will still have some form of use for them. This is when they finally exit hyperspace and find themselves approaching Peridia, an ancient homeworld of the Night Sisters. Balin explains to Shin that this is also where Purgle come to die, as we see a giant ring of whale bones circling around the planet. Man, that is some messed up shit. Like them flying through all the carcasses of the burgle. Yeah, that was some intense imagery. <laughs> yeah, and overall, I love the look of this planet. I mean, it looked like it was the Night Sisters home planet, right? It was just perfect. Mm -hmm. um, just heavy atmosphere, ruins, spooky as all hell. Yeah, they continue to make the Night Sisters as metal as possible in Star Wars. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it looked like the cover for the newest Testament album. Uh -huh. Finding a signal, Morgan Elsbeth, along with Shin, Balin, and Sabine, make their way down to the surface, where they encounter three Night Sisters, with one Morgan calls the Great Mother. The Great Mother welcomes them and is pleased that their call through Elsbeth's dreams brought her here, just as Thrawn had anticipated. Morgan wonders why Thrawn isn't here though, but the Great Mother claims he is on his way. So only one of them was the Great Mother? I thought they were all the Great Mother. She directly addressed one as the Great Mother, but maybe, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if all three of them are considered it. And it took me a while to figure out too. I thought they were saying grandmother for a while. <laughs> I was like, well, that's not, you know, really creative, um, you know, kind of weird. Uh, I was super stoked to see like, the night sisters like in their full glory here mm -hmm. it was something i was not expecting whatsoever i mean i was disappointed when they seemingly were all like slaughtered um in clone wars so the fact that we could actually perhaps see the resurrection you know happening uh you know in the star wars galaxy proper is awesome well for us the viewers not for the people that have to deal with them <laughs> <laughs> The three Night Sisters then become quickly conscious of Sabine's presence as they use three orbs to ensnare Sabine in some type of light rope and force her to a cell here in, on the spire that they stand on. Yeah, they said she stunk like Jedi, which I thought was an awesome line. Uh -huh. <laughs> Night Sisters then take Morgan off to see the catacombs where their stuff is. And for a moment, Shin and Balin are left alone, which Shin clocks something is off about Balin. For Skull, this planet was a place of folk stories of, you know, an ancient past long forgotten. Shin remarks that perhaps they were forgotten for a reason, and stories are just that, stories. Balin then recalls the Knights of the Jedi Purge. Through his experience, Balin believes history just repeats itself again and again with, the, you know, the rise and fall of the Jedi and the Sith. Shin asks if this is their time in the cycle, you know, will this bring them power? But Balin is looking for something more than that. Balin believes he can break this cycle 
and may be able to find the answer on how to do that right here on Peridia. Yeah, this was a huge episode for Balin and Shin. Yes. Um, we really got into like Balin's motivations and exactly why he's doing what he's doing. You know, he's not just a simple mercenary. Um, you know, obviously he's got alternative motives, which, you know, I wasn't really expecting. I was assuming it was more Morgan who would have other reasons for rescuing Thrawn, um, you know, other than, you know, for the glory of the Empire or whatever. I mean, part of it's obviously, you know, for, you know, helping her people out, the Night Sisters. Uh, but it seems like, you know, their goals, you know, the, the Night Sisters and Thrawns are kind of like intertwined. Where in this episode, we're really finding out that like Balin and Shin are the true wild cards. And it might actually bring them to odds with Thrawn. Also, Shin really does fucking hate witches, huh? Apparently. <laughs> Every time she sees some witchcraft happening, she's like, nope, not not dealing with that shit. Exactly. Just looks completely disgusting. Yes. <laughs> We then get another moment with Sabine attempting to reach out and use the force. And as the room begins to shake, we find out again, it wasn't her abilities, but the shaking actually came from an approaching Star Destroyer. This Star Destroyer is filled with night troopers and TIE fighters, which makes its way down around the platform where Thrawn approaches the Night Sisters. Thrawn then explains that he has made an arrangement with the Night Sisters to take some cargo with them, and Morgan explains it will take about three days to get everything onto the ship. What a fucking entrance. I was not expecting this grand of a reveal, no pun intended. Um, but fucking night troopers man talk about badass like are, are these zombie troopers you think like they got all know. the damaged like uh, you know uh, war-torn armor and shit um you know people have been pointing out that it seems like some of them are held together by like red thread that looks like it's actually from like the night sisters perhaps um, you know, some of it's, you know, fixed with like the gold, which is like, I believe like an ancient, like Japanese, um, way of mending like, you know, broken armor. And we know Lucas and Filoni love their samurai lore. Mm -hmm. So, um, just a great look. Um, so do you think the Night Sisters like resurrected like part of Thrawn's fleet? I, mean, I think it's very possible they're known to be able to do that. I just don't know if I'm ready for, you know, full on zombies in Star Wars. Oh, bring you it, know? bring it. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for this moment, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you don't know if you're ready for full on zombie stormtroopers? Come on, man. What's, <laughs> what's not to love? <laughs> but yeah, um, Thrawn's entrance in general just felt like even like a bigger moment than when we saw Palpatine again for the you know second time. I know like Lars Mikkelsen's been getting flack for looking like a blue Elon Musk, but <laughs> I don't see how you could cast anyone else in this role, especially after he did such a superb job, you know, voice acting the role in Rebels. I mean, paint that dude blue and get him out there. I mean... He is Thrawn. I mean, it's clear that, you know, he can do more than just voice acting. He has that, you know, performance in him. Exactly. Exactly. Like, he knows how to fucking carry himself. It's mm -hmm. not just about the voice. Um, but, man, <laughs> the voice is fucking perfect. <laughs> yes. It really is. <laughs> like, he could make, like, reading the phone book sound evil. <laughs> so this cargo that's part of the deal that Thrawn's going to be carrying for the Night Sisters go back to their galaxy do you think it's like part of some like master plan to resurrect the night sisters like maybe on uh dothamir am i saying that right dothamir dothamir yeah dothamir um i it's possible like what if those are all just caskets 
yeah the, the corpses. You know, their fallen sisters yeah um it is a similar plot thread to what Marin did in um the not the force unleashed but uh fallen order because she pretty much like all of her people were dead on her planet and she just brought them back to life herself uh not like i mean they were all puppets of hers um as soldiers that you get to fight in the game so it's just like i i understand that that's just a game mechanic but i just think that would be interesting if they're going to maybe do something very similar to that where they have an army of night sisters probably um behind them i mean we've seen feloni cherry pick from you know star wars lore in the past mm -hmm. so i wouldn't be surprised if it's more of the same here but I'm sure, like, the end game is to have the Night Sisters thriving in the galaxy again since they've been wiped out. Thrawn then learns of an unexpected guest. As Balin explains, they may still have use for Sabine. Upon meeting Balin, Thrawn immediately recognizes him as one of the generals of the Republic back when he was a Jedi. Thrawn then delights in finding out that the prisoner is Sabine Wren, as he agrees with Balin that she will, in fact, still be of use. I love the fact that Thrawn just knows everything. Because uh -huh. you know Balin wasn't like a high-ranking general. And it seems like all the Jedi's got like general rank, you know, in the Clone Wars. Mm -hmm. So and Balin must have been in his like maybe early 20s. Yeah, Ahsoka um, was even considered a general. Yes, so yeah. yes, which is pretty <laughs> fucked up. We talked about that last episode. Uh -huh. um, but like Thrawn is that dude who knows like the all the ranks, you know, and all the names. And the fact, too, that he didn't even flinch when they mentioned Sabine's name, um, where a lesser villain would definitely be, you know, pissed off and a little worried. I'm sure like right away in his mind, he started plotting exactly what his next move was going to be, knowing exactly why she's there, you know, to rescue Ezra. I did find it interesting that, you know, the Night Sisters saw her as an anomaly, you know, in that whole situation. She was a loose thread, as they called it. So I wonder how much they've actually predicted, um, you know, going forward. We immediately cut to Sabine being brought before Thrawn as the two are finally reunited. Even Thrawn is a bit surprised by Sabine's choices as she is directly responsible for bringing him his means of escape from this system. In a sign of gratitude, Thrawn gives Sabine a chance to find Ezra, setting her up with a mount and everything much to Sabine's surprise. Thrawn exclaims that there is a big chance that Ezra may not have survived all this time, but Sabine doesn't care and still prepares to head on out. Like I said, he's always three steps ahead. Like he's already like, you know, getting in her head, like talking shit. <laughs> You know, basically said you just sacrificed your galaxy, mm. you know, for, you know, Ezra um, and, and pretty much thanking her. Uh, so, yeah, no, just awesome. The leader of Thrawn's troops, Enoch, escorts Sabine out, warning Sabine that bandits prey on people out in the wilds and tells her to, you know, die well as he gives her back her blasters and Ezra's lightsaber. Thrawn and company then watch as Sabine rides out, in which Thrawn turns to Balin and Shin and instructs them to follow and kill both her and Ezra. This Enoch character is creepy as all fuck, man, that the, you know, the human face on the stormtrooper helmet I love it. I love it. It's helmet. just messed up looking. I, know, I love it too. <laughs> I can't wait for the Black Series figure. Are you kidding me? Uh -huh. But yeah, it's still pretty messed up looking. Because it, it totally fits Thrawn's whole like artist motif too. Like, Oh yeah. Oh, there's probably some cultural significance and uh -huh. everything like that, you know, to that, that planet or something like that, whoever Enoch is. But something about the helmet reminds me of one of those like death masks, 
almost. So and I'm sure that's probably the look that they're going for. It's also very like Roman. It's not long before Sabine is ambushed by locals. Her howler then runs off and Sabine is forced to defend herself, killing several bandits by blaster and saber, scaring off a few of the last that remain. I'm really happy they have this scene here. Because, I mean, through this entire series, we've just seen Sabine getting her ass kicked over and yeah. over again. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this woman is a fucking Mandalorian and a highly skilled one at that. So she should be able to, like, single-handedly, you know, hand these nomads their asses. Um, and she did. So I'm glad that, you know, we established that she's still a fucking warrior. <laughs> We cut to Enoch informing Thrawn that Balin and Shin have departed. When Morgan asks if Thrawn is going to send any type of reinforcements, Thrawn's true intentions become clear as he basically says win or lose, Balin and Shin do not matter at all. In fact, all that matters is them leaving on time. Yep, they're just, you know, more pawns in his game, right? Yeah, Morgan's not able to keep up with someone like Thrawn. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Also, before I forget, before we move on, um, did you notice when Thrawn gave Balin the orders to go after um, Sabine and, you know, kill her and Ezra, um, that Shin, you know, was kind of taken aback by that. You know, she was, like, surprised that Balin was going to actually, like, you know, betray his word. Uh, I did not catch her expression in that moment, no. Yeah, she definitely questioned, like, you know, and was taken aback by it. So I'm wondering if something bigger is going to come out of that, you know, you know, between Shin and uh, Balin. Sabine later finds her howler out in the wild, and the two try and, you know, get along. The howler then seems to sniff something out, and with no real way to find Ezra, Sabine just decides to let the howler take, you know, the lead and follow this scent. The two later come across a stream where, you know, interesting rocks seem to be, you know, getting the howler's attention. The rocks turn out to actually be a race called the Noti that recognize the symbol on Sabine's shoulder, as they may have actually run into Ezra at some point. Sabine, not knowing how to actually communicate with them, though, decides to just follow them in hopes of finding Ezra. Filoni knows what he's doing. You always got to have the cute little alien creature and, you know, any successful, like, Star Wars project. Yeah. So <laughs> these are his. Um, you know, strangely enough, I guess not strangely enough, since they're both done by Henson, or at least originally done by Henson, these little, like, hermit crab people actually remind me of something out of, like, Labyrinth. Um, mm. But I guess that makes sense since Henson worked with Lucas, you know, uh, in the past. So obviously they're going to draw, you know, from that inspiration. Balin and Shin then find the dead bandits from earlier as they continue to track down Sabine. Shin asks if, you know, Balin knows anything about Bridger, but, you know, he explains Ezra was far too young and trained after the fall of the Jedi Temple. Shin asks if Balin actually misses the Jedi Order and if he truly sees a future here on Peridia. Balin remarks this was one of the great witch kingdoms and that there may be power greater than that of the Night Sisters, hence why they are so eager to abandon this world. Balin says he feels something calling to him here. And as he brings this up to Shin, she notices that there's bandits overseeing them. With them, Balin says that he plans to make friends with them as they continue their hunt i mean i know we already pretty much figured but you know this is definite confirmation that you know shin was trained after the jedi order um mm -hmm. you know but we figured that just by her age alone so um it was interesting though to hear that you know well she she says something like you know oh like me when he brought up ezra's jedi training and he was like no i trained you to be much more than that so i'm curious to see like if we get deeper into exactly what that means or if it's just alluding to them being you know 
darker versions of the Jedi. So there's some theories that are going around to like exactly what's calling out to Balin. Um, you know, one of them is that it could be possibly the sun um, from, you know, the Mortis plane or planet. I don't know what the hell it was. Right. It was a dimension, Christian. Yeah, I, th I feel like it's, it would be considered a dimension. Maybe this planet is Mortis, but <laughs> yeah. So but they're saying that it could be possibly the sun who represents the dark side of the the force, like the mm -hmm. ancient dark side of the force. Um, he's like the living embodiment of that. And the reason behind that is because a lot of people are pointing to Balin's name, which is a reference to uh, the Norris wolf that chases after the sun. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. So <laughs> see what they're doing there? Uh -huh. <laughs> which, it, you know, I mean, hey, it's it's a it's a pretty good breadcrumb compared mm. to others that we've dealt with that, you know, whole theories were based on. <laughs> um I don't know if they're going to go that deep into Star Wars lore, um, but I wouldn't be surprised, you know, because, I mean, Dave Filoni is a huge nerd like we are. So, um, I mean, I didn't think we'd get the world between worlds, you know, a couple years back, you know, in live action form. And here we are now. Right. So, I mean, maybe. Um, but honestly, like, if you think about it, it would make sense. Like, that would be probably the only thing that would scare the Night Sisters off the planet um you know the only thing powerful enough unless they're introducing something completely new um which could be and i'm fine with that now i'm a novice when it comes to like old republic lore could they also possibly be pulling from that i mean if we start getting into the old republic there's you're gonna get like a million more theories because i mean there's the old republic explores oh, so trust much me, trust me there are a million uh. other theories out there. <laughs> I'm just sticking with the theory I actually know something about. Uh. It just feels like a lot of people are jonesing for some old republics. So. Because we also had the whole like nod to the old republic with the ISI on, you know, the hyperdrive. I mean, I feel like it's probably the Mortis stuff makes more sense to me just because, you know, we know Ahsoka has also got the, the sister of light in her. Yes. So it's like a, a full circle moment if they yes. really wanted to go there. And it's Dave Filoni, right? Yeah. But storyline-wise, I feel like there's a chance, like, well, two things. I feel like, you know, when you were harping on back uh, with, you know, Shin possibly falling out of line or falling, you know, a, a, or turning against Balin, I feel like as a possibility here. I also feel like Balin might survive and stay on this planet. I feel like there's a storyline element where he, we might find out that he, you know, years after maybe episode nine, that Balin's created know something completely different on this other planet and it might oh. come back you know and that could like build to and be the gateway to what ray is perhaps dealing with in her upcoming film which we know is supposed to take place like something like 10 years after the events of rise of skywalker mm -hmm. you know if they have some type of working plan for all that who knows right now i mean in my head i like to think that's true but I mean, this is Kathleen Kennedy, so. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, she did decide to do a whole trilogy without, like, a cohesive vision, you yeah. know, from the start, so. Without a basic outline. <laughs> it's like writing 101. Uh-huh. <laughs> At the Nodi's camp, Sabine is finally reunited with an older Ezra Bridger, excited that someone finally made it to him. 
After the two embrace, Ezra starts to ask how Sabine even found him and how she even got here, but Sabine decides to hold off on telling him what she did. Ezra again thanks Sabine and tells her he can't wait to go home as Sabine is hit with more of the reality of their situation. Yeah, it's going to be one hell of a conversation, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, like, you know, I wasn't really that excited for the Ezra of it all uh, when this series started. But like once we got to this scene, I was happy to see him. Um, he, he's got to be really powerful at this point. Oh, yeah. Though. I think I just, um, Shin and B Balin are going to show up and, you know, she's going to be like, you were trained like me. And he's like, no. And he just beats them. Like, <laughs> right. Um, I just have a feeling he's not long for this world. Like, I don't ah. foresee Ezra being part of the big picture moving forward like i could see him making another sacrifice just because he's so powerful like how do you make sense of him not being around or causing like major ripple effects now with that being said i mean there's still a huge chunk of time unaccounted for between you know here and force awakens so who knows but i, I don't know i mean as we've said multiple times this story has to kind of have a bad ending not i mean not ahsoka necessarily but whatever they're building up to in this film, just because we know where things are going to go with The Force Awakens, you know, how the universe exactly. is. Exactly, and with the groundwork that they laid in season three of The Mandalorian, it definitely feels like Thrawn is going to make it home. Mm -hmm. So at least to me, that definitely dictates that this show is not going to have a happy ending. The Night Sisters then approach with more bad news as they foresee the arrival of Ahsoka. Morgan claims Balin, you know, killed her, but Thrawn stops her and says they will prepare for her arrival anyway, asking for everything that Morgan knows about Ahsoka. He then orders Morgan to attack any Purgle that come near Peridia before requesting more of the dark magic of the Night Sisters as our episode comes to a close. So yeah, I mean, this was another amazing episode. So what do you think the request that Thrawn is making is exactly? Like, what is he going to do with this dark magic? Because, um, I mean, th to me, they already used a lot of it to resurrect uh -huh. all these stormtroopers. <laughs> so what else could he be requesting here? Like, are we going to see like a souped up Thrawn or something? See, I, I would rather not have a super powered Thrawn. Um, I feel like, you know, him just being cerebral is enough for me. I'm hoping mo maybe it's more going to be like they set up type some type of traps or maybe they have like, you know, some type of nightmare thing that they can do to Ahsoka when she arrives and then she's having like dark visions. I don't know. It's got to be something major because if he's going to take down Ahsoka and Ezra, uh -huh. I mean, he's going to definitely need all the witchcraft he can get his hands on. <laughs> so because that's quite the undertaking. Those are two really powerful Jedi. Maybe it's a, you know, giant zombified purgle. Just ready that, to attack that, them. <laughs> that would be pretty fucking badass. <laughs> Especially with all those fucking like purgle corpses flying uh -huh. around the planet. I mean, you could have a whole army of zombie purgle. But anyway, I guess we'll have to just wait and see. Uh, join us next week as we break down episode seven of Ahsoka. All right, before we move on, I'm happy to announce we have a brand new partner this month. AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Let me tell you, once I turned 40, I started to fall apart. So I was literally trying everything to help me hold it together. But I was getting tired of taking so many supplements and I wanted a single solution 
that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional bases every day. I wanted better gut health, a boost in energy, and immune system support. But I hated taking vitamins every single day, and I wanted a supplement that actually tasted great. And that's when I discovered AG1. I've started drinking AG1 every morning before starting my day, and it genuinely feels like I'm doing something good for my body, especially as a gamer trying to be more active. It feels like I'm finally giving my body the nutrition it craves. Plus, I found it difficult trying to keep up with other routines due to them having several different products involved. But AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic, and more in one simple drinkable habit. Since I've been drinking AG1, I've noticed an overall feeling of health. I'm no longer too exhausted after work to play with my daughter or help her with her homework. AG1's helped boost my energy, help my focus and mental clarity, and even help improve my digestion. And that's all due to its science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. AG1 helps you build your health foundation first. Why take a bunch of different things when you can just mix one scoop of powder in water once a day? AG1 was designed with ease in mind so you can live healthier and better without having to complicate your routine. And what I love about AG1 is that it's delivered to me every month, so it's been super easy to make it a daily habit. I also get the single serving AG1 travel packs, so I never have to miss a day. I just mix the powder into ice cold water and drink it first thing every morning, and that's it. With AG1, taking good care of your body every day is really that simple. If you wanna take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is head over to drinkag1.com slash nerdshow. Once again, to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase, all you have to do is go to drinkag1.com slash nerdshow. That's drinkag1.com slash nerdshow and check it out. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. All right, welcome to the gaming corner of the podcast. In a massive surprise this week, Xbox had one of the largest leaks in history after details from their battle with the FTC were leaked online. Now, a lot of these details come from early plans that Xbox had during after the purchase of ZeniMax, um, you know, the parent company of Bethesda. Come out of these leaks were, you know, things like Elder Scrolls 6 being an Xbox, you know, exclusive, along with PC exclusive, of course. Um, while Bethesda and Xbox have reported multiple times that the game may not be ready for, you know, five more years, there's still a lot that seems to point at a 2026 release. Now, personally, I feel like the game might be shown off in 2026 but i don't expect a release um, in the next three years you know i feel like they've been bracing us enough to understand that you know this game still has a while to come out and especially now that starfield has officially dropped so they can start putting more effort towards elder Scrolls 6 but i don't expect it to come out just right away um in the next three years but you know it's possible it was part of their original roadmap to have you know another big title every three years but we'll see what happens other titles that were found in the documents that haven't been announced yet were a remaster of oblivion which many people have been you know requesting for a while now um seems like they're bringing it back to life with the unreal engine 5 but keeping the um 
gameplay mechanics within its original engine um, this can also be said for fallout 3 being remastered um, at the time they also had considered sequels to ghostwire tokyo and dishonored 3 along with another doom game in doom year zero um, the list also included three untitled projects um, along with their indiana jones game that they have announced but again there's no clear sign when these games if they're still in development when they could actually be coming out most feel definitely you know likely you know with the remaster of oblivion and fallout 3 that's just easy money for them hell even modders have been you know currently working on an oblivion remake though this news apparently hasn't you know discouraged their efforts at all they said that they're still going to continue to put something out whether or not oblivion does um, get remastered by bethesda i also have to imagine that one of those three untitled projects is most likely going to be a wolfenstein game it wasn't listed in any of them but it would be one of their big missing franchises that you know microsoft would want to capitalize on um tech wise xbox seems to be at least thinking about other ways to attack the console market as designs and concepts for handheld devices and streaming devices were found through the leaks which you know we've seen from other companies now um, everyone is getting into the handheld market so i'm not surprised that xbox would want to do something like that too um playstation has their own thing coming out but that's a you know straight streaming device it's not going to be something like on the scale of a nintendo switch but you know you know they're trying to get that vibe out there um also of course you know is the mid console generation refresh um was also something that xbox had in the works with now a sleek cylinder style xbox series x um, the design comes with updated usb larger storage up to two terabytes there um, and overall seems like an improvement through and through while remaining around 500 though many have pointed out a lack of disc tray which now you know me personally having a digital only ps5 and having to pay extra on sony games i get that frustration uh, this console is potentially coming in 2028 before they start working on on, you know whatever the next xbox series whatever is going to be um, again a lot of xbox bethesda's strategy has changed throughout the years you know the landscape of the entertainment world is always shifting with so you never know exactly if any of this is still like in the pipeline or not but a lot of it seems very likely and you know bethesda and xbox haven't come out and really said that none of this is happening they've just mostly came out and seemed disappointed that a lot of this news has dropped this way some other quick notes though uh, included phil spencer talking about microsoft potentially having interest in buying nintendo but if you ask me after the purchase of activision and all the bullshit that they're going through with that i can't imagine what the hell it would be like for them to try and pick up you know nintendo it just may be too much of a hassle and too much you know legal legality getting involved but on the other side those brands are worth every penny um, acquiring nintendo and having mario on game pass and shit like that instantly would put xbox on top of the world but i'm also having a hard time believing that nintendo is going to be willing to sell um you know you don't know what you know nintendo is ever thinking i feel like in the games industry um, they make a lot of strange choices they're only just now getting into the film you know market and seeing success there which may bolster them and you know finally get them you know in that mindset of reaching their full potential here as a brand 
So who knows what's going to happen with Nintendo? Uh, Microsoft also considered purchasing Valve, which again would be a massive headache, but probably worth it knowing the money that they could actually rake in. And who knows, maybe finally get Half-Life 3. Um, though Steam being under Microsoft's control kind of sounds like a fucking nightmare to me. Those were some of the biggest bullet points to me. Um, it is wild that, you know, the slightest of errors, you created a window for everyone to get you know, this huge insight into the Xbox world. You know, we've seen, you know, their concerns and stuff that they were aware of how lackluster those last few years have been for their, you know, new console, considering that they haven't had many big titles for it. No new Halos, no new anything to really get people to come back to their console. But now with things starting to come out with Starfield and stuff like that, hopefully they're heading in the right direction and hopefully we can get some of these titles. Outside of the Xbox leaks, um, the fall season of gaming is here and releases just keep coming um, the resident evil 4 dlc for ada wong and wesker separate ways has dropped along with the game being on sale on steam right now i think it's about $40 uh, with uh, $10 for the DLC as well. Uh, Witchfire, which is a game that we've been you know, watching very closely since it just looks like such an awesome FPS with witch abilities uh, type of game. Uh, that's in early access right now. And I desperately want to you know, try it out. Mortal Kombat 1 is actually officially out and we will be probably waiting a minute to purchase it just because of how you know, packed this season is you know, for this two month span. I mean, fuck, Cyberpunk 2.0 is here as well with the expansion right around the corner. And you know I'm going to have to play it again for the fourth time now that it's... Uh you know, a whole new fucking game. Um, I mean, it truly is overwhelming time to be a gamer. I'm still working on Starfield, uh, Bowler's Gate 3, and, you know, plenty more. I still have finished Horizon, for fuck's sakes. Um, and these are all the games that I'm playing, you know, while streaming, you know. I don't know if you guys want to watch me do cyberpunk over again um you know i haven't played it since my first run on stream so we'll, we'll be leaving that up in the air um depending on when i can actually start doing that compared uh you know considering all the games that i'm already currently playing but either way make sure you stop by our twitch and catch us live we're live every single weekend um I've been getting myself back onto my schedule more properly. So, you know, hopefully things continue to roll the way that they are. Always make sure to check out at Amazing Nerd Live for any updates for the uh, Twitch side of things. Otherwise, I am going to start posting more on Instagram as well. So make sure that you're following us at Amazing Nerd Show on Instagram. You know, last year compared to this year's games, um, gamers are eating good. Uh, and I finally feel like we're getting out of that COVID slump in gaming. I'll try my best not to jinx us here. Uh, games just feel like they're getting to that next level and I'm here for it. But anyway, with that said, let's go ahead and move on to some wrestling. Christian, so another AEW Grand Slam is in the books, and I gotta say, it was one hell of a show. Uh, AEW's on quite the streak when it comes to these, like, you know, huge events right now. I mean, if you count this, 
and all in and all out. I mean, that's three in a row um, that I feel like definitely over delivered almost because uh, this had like a big like pay-per-view feel to it, even more so than the first two Grand Slams. Um, you know, so let's go ahead and get into the card. Now, you actually did not get to catch the card tonight, right? Yeah, unfortunately, we're recording early and I'm not going to be able to watch it tomorrow and be able to do the show tomorrow. So it is what it is because you're going to baby metal. Yeah, of course. Hey, man, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging. <laughs> My daughter, who's a loves baby metal. So, I mean, cool beans. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and get into the card. What the fuck is that supposed to be? <laughs> Just watch out for any mean eight-year-olds in the pit. That's all I'm saying. Uh-huh, okay. uh-huh. Well, first up on the card, we had Eddie Kingston defeating Claudio, finally uh, getting the Ring of Honor World Championship and retaining his Openweight uh, Strong Championship. Yeah, right from the get-go, this had a big fight presentation. Um, I love the way they shot their entrances. They actually, like, did that old WWE thing um, from back in the day. I think it was, God, I think it was WrestleMania 13, or no, WrestleMania 14, the first time I saw it as a fan, where they actually start off showing the wrestler backstage kind of, like, right before they make their entrance and everything. Um, it just gives it like that real authentic sports feel almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got that with Claudio and we got that with Kingston. Kingston's pop was huge, which you would expect with it being in New York and everything like that. He definitely had that like hometown advantage going. Um, I, I will say like the stadium I thought was well lit. It was shot well. I do wish they would have. I don't know, done a better job kind of balancing the audience noise because sometimes it was just drowned out by like the music and the pyro. But I don't feel like they really captured exactly like how loud the crowd was because you could tell they were all standing on their feet and chanting. You could hear it in the background. And I mean, they did end up getting close to like 10,000 people in the arena because that was, you know, a concern. Um, at first, I think tickets were under 5,000 at one point, uh, but they made a huge push at the end and they got the number to like a respectable place, you know, on par to what they did last year, at least. I mean, the first year they did close to like 20,000, but that was their first year, I believe, in New York. So um, I, I didn't expect them to do that. But, you know, 10,000, that's I feel like kind of, you know, the sweet spot for Arthur Ashe. But yeah, you know, for the match itself, I mean, it was a smash mouth affair. I mean, both guys were just trading blows left and right. Um, You know, they really highlighted just what a fucking beast Claudio is in the ring. You know, he was able to just throw Kingston around. uh, But they also really put over like just how tenacious, you know, Kingston is as a wrestler and how he just refused to back down to Claudio and, you know, kind of like had to reach down deep, um, you know, to get the the big win they did a real nice callback to the uppercut um win that claudio got over kingston last month on pay-per-view uh where i was actually scared for a second that claudio was gonna pull it off again like pull off another win um no but you know kingston was able to put it in a different gear and you know pick up the win uh i believe he won with a power bomb but yeah, this was a real nice moment for Kingston winning the world title, a world title, I should say, uh, in front of his home crowd. Um, you know, AEW didn't do that AEW thing where they just kind of rush off to the next segment. They actually let the moment play out, making it feel even bigger. Kingston got to celebrate in the ring. He actually shared a handshake with Claudio. So it looks like this chapter um 
is done for Kingston at least. So hopefully he'll be able to move on. Um, you know, uh, Kingston, you know, mouth thank you to the cameras. Um, it was just really well done, you know, production wise. And you could actually tell it meant a lot to Kingston. Now we can just see if he'll ever get an AEW title run at some day. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath, Christian. <laughs> Then there was then there was a video package of Matt Taven and Mike Bennett uh, praying for Roderick Strong at his bedside. <laughs> this was amazing. Uh, they had like the rosary out. <laughs> They're all in black. Um, Adam Cole shows up. Uh, you know, Strong starts laid it on thick. Um, this was just, I mean, perfect. Like they had him in this little like dinky hospital bed. <laughs> Uh, you know, Strong is manipulating Cole, making him feel guilty for not being there sooner. Uh, the kingdom's insulted because uh, Cole's not wearing black. He's not in mourning. Um, and then Cole has to run off because, you know, he's got to be at ringside with MJF for his big, you know, title match later on. But, yeah, I'm just loving what Strong is doing with this, like, jilted ex-girlfriend character that he's got going nowadays. Uh, before our next match, we also had a backstage uh, interview with Renee. Uh, Luchasaurus and Christian Cage, you know, talked about beating up Sting and Darby at um, the Rampage show. Yes, and there's quite a few matches on that Rampage card, which is the second night of Grand Slam, I guess, this year again. Uh, and Rampage is actually two hours long this week. Ah, uh, okay. So all that's actually being recorded as we speak. So hopefully we'll have some spoilers, uh, you know, after we're done with the review. Uh, because by the time this podcast will be released, so it doesn't really matter. Well, then our next match was Chris Jericho defeating Sammy Guevara. So I almost called, like, the ending of this match, you know, after the bell. Uh, but I kind of had it, you know, in reverse. Uh, you know, Sammy ended up losing the match. Uh, throughout the match, there was tons of homages and nods to WrestleMania 19, where Jericho faced off against HBK in a whole, like, you know, apprentice versus mentor kind of deal. Now, I will say they might have been a little too heavy-handed here because, like, Sammy is literally wearing the same tights that Jericho wore in the match. Um, you know, his version, obviously. Uh, but, you know, right when I saw that, and he, he even had, like, a light-up vest on. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, my God, they are going to do that fucking storyline here. Um, but where I was wrong was I thought it was going to be Jericho kicking Sammy in the balls at the end of the match, you know, after, you know, suffering a big loss. Because it just felt like... Jericho was on the road to, you know, being a heel again. And, and Sammy was definitely headed in babyface territory, or at least, you know, that's what they're hoping for. I don't know if it was actually working. But at the end of the day, Sammy goes off the top rope for some insane flip. And Jericho catches him with a code breaker uh, with some impeccable timing. Like, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty damn close. Uh, Jericho picks up the win after the match. They share a hug in the middle of the ring. You know where this is headed. <laughs> Sammy then kicks Jericho in the balls. Jericho goes down in a heap of betrayal. Um, Don Callis then enters the scene uh, to a chorus of boos. And Sammy walks up the ramp with him, seemingly joining the Don Callis family. Oh. <laughs> uh, I am surprised that, you know, they went this route because it 
really did feel like they're trying to push Sammy as a baby face. And maybe they just read the room and realized it's not working. So that's why they decided kind of like, you know, do about face and, you know, go the other direction with this. Mm-hmm. Um, not that Jericho was like a full fledged baby face by any means, but I don't know. I, I, w- I was definitely surprised by this outcome. You know, I figured they were going to do something similar to this, um, you know, since both of these guys were, you know, laid out pretty thick with a whole like, you know, Padawan, you know, Jedi Master, you know, shtick. But, you know, I, I just didn't foresee Sammy being the one turning. Uh, but I do like the idea of him being with Callus. You know, finally, you know, Callus's family has, you know, a couple members at least. You know, more than one. Yes. <laughs> How can you be a family with well, one guy? And I don't know if we're skipping ahead because I'm not sure where this actually took place. Um, but later on backstage, uh, Danny Garcia confronts Guevara and it looks like they're about to come to blows. But then Callus stops them and says that Garcia's money and they both walk away. So it looks like Callus is actually courting Garcia, too. So we'll see what comes of that. Well, after this match, we had Ray Phoenix defeating John Moxley to now become the AEW International Champion. Yes, to the surprise of everyone, um, even Moxley and Phoenix. <laughs> so apparently Moxley got hurt at the end of this match and called uh, Audible, um, telling the ref to count to three after taking a driver in the middle of the ring. Uh, Knox did not hear him or just botched it and counted two and then confusingly checked Moxley's shoulders, even though they were firmly planted on the mat. Um, so then Phoenix just went ahead and hit the move again, which looked even more terrifying the second time. <laughs> it's like you could have just done an elbow drop or something. You had to hit him with another fucking driver and spike his head in the fucking mats. Like, what, what are we doing? Um, you know, afterwards, Moxley did not get up, which was pretty scary. But apparently, you know, after Phoenix celebrated in the ring for a little bit um, and the cameras were off, Moxley was able to walk back to the locker room on his own w- w- with some help. Um, apparently, he's OK. Um, there's a chance that he suffered a concussion. Um, I felt he got his bell rung in the beginning of the match, though. So I'm wondering if this was just kind of like almost a snowball effect because Phoenix takes a dive off the ramp and hits Moxley. And it looks like Moxley's head bounces off the ground. And even the announcers caught like called attention to this. And then like right afterwards, like Moxley had a real hard time getting up to his feet. I mean, Moxley's a great seller, but when he got into the ring, the sequence of moves that like followed felt like Moxley was like performing them underwater, like to the Mm. point where the crowd kind of started to murmur and it just felt like they were concerned. Like, you know, should they call a match? He seems a little out of it. Like he was able to like regain composure eventually, but I'm wondering if like the initial injury happened there and then it just, you know, was just kind of like a chain of events that led to, you know, Moxley feeling like he could no longer continue. So, I mean, we'll probably never really know, and hopefully he's okay. That's what's most important here. Um, But, you know, Khan needs to talk to his refs and, you know, do the old adage of, like, you count three as a shoot. And if, you know, they don't get their shoulders up, they don't get their shoulders up. That's on the performers because, you know, it looks really fucking silly when a ref has to stop his count for no Mm -hmm. fucking reason whatsoever. 
But this isn't the first time Nox's integrity has been questioned, you know, on AEW television, because uh, he's definitely had a few moments that kind of left you scratching your head. But anyway, yeah, so, yeah, Ray Phoenix is the international champion. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Orange Cassidy doesn't, you know, regain that title now, especially if Mox is, you know, out of action for a little bit. I mean, you said before, like, it'd be nice maybe to have Ray Phoenix take the title around, you know, to other countries for a minute uh, just to give it a space, I guess. And give it that, like, actual international, like, uh -huh. you know, flavor. Um, that would be cool. Um, it, it, I'm just saying, you know, I could see Cassidy win that title again because it definitely felt like the program between Moxley and Cassidy wasn't over. So maybe they go ahead and scrap whatever plans they had in store for Moxley and... You know, once he comes back, he can face off against Cassidy again and, you know, rekindle the feud. You never know. Ray Phoenix might just go on a tear. Yeah, you know, it might be Ray Phoenix time. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't be mad at it. I mean, he deserves it. Uh, right. After this backstage, Samoa Joe says it's going to be a night of consequences. But after those threats, we have Soraya defeating Tony Storm to retain the AEW women's title. So first things first, uh, Tony's got a brand new entrance. I feel like we're seeing this character in her final form. Uh, you know, it's black and white. Um, given that, like, you know, 20s cinema feel, um, you know, music and all. Like, the music sounds like it's something from, like, you know, Gone with the Wind. Uh, you know, she comes out and she poses in the ring multiple times <laughs> to the music. <laughs> I mean, my one small critique for this whole new production is I'd like to see the music maybe crescendo a little more, you know, when she hits all her poses, mm. uh, just to give it more of a dramatic flair. Uh, but this was pretty much fucking perfect. And, like, the way Tony worked this match was amazing. Like, this was actually a really entertaining match. Um, you know, Tony is now utilizing the shoe gimmick um, as part of, you know, her her arsenal. Um, you know, at one point she attacks Ruby with some slippers she had hidden underneath the ring, <laughs> but that was all a distraction for the pump she had actually in her tights, uh, which everyone could clearly see except for the ref, of course. Uh, you know, once the ref is, I believe she, he's checking on, uh, Ruby for some reason, uh, Tony pulls out the pump and attacks Soraya. There was a sequence where Soraya actually ended up refusing to use an exposed turnbuckle in the corner and kind of took, like, pity on Tony, uh, yeah. to which Tony answered with a huge kiss in the middle of the ring, um, you know, distracting Soraya and then hitting her, you know, pile driver, which I actually thought was going to be the finish, but that turned out not to be the case. Soraya ended up clawing her way to victory, um, which I wasn't necessarily surprised by by like you know she just got the title at all in so um you know this was her first title defense uh and i'm guessing you know with mercedes name floating out there um you know and her being rumored to actually you know showing up in AEW, um i'm guessing they're probably gonna you know start her right away in a program with soraya over the title uh, especially you know with their shared history and everything but regardless of who won or lost i mean the big takeaway I got from this match, which was just clearly evident, was just how fucking over Tony Storm is right now. I mean, the crowd was just eating up everything she did in the ring. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Tony doesn't have that title sooner than later.
Up next, we have MJF versus Samoa Joe. And before that happened, uh, MJF had a special callback in his entrance. And actually, this isn't the first time we see MJF. Uh, earlier on in the night, we, we see him cutting a promo on Samoa Joe in a parking lot with Adam Cole. Uh, but Adam Cole uh, interrupts the promo when he gets a, a call from uh, Roddy Strong who's having some kind of like life and death crisis. So we see Cole rush off to um, Strong's side, meaning that MJF was going to be without Cole at ringside for the main event. But regardless, uh, you know, this little piece of business they did before the main event was just magical. Uh, it was a parody on a parody that WWE did back in the 90s with Bret Hart. Uh, you know, uh, the fan calls out, hey, Bret. Brett turns around, I guess it's supposed to be backstage or in the locker room, you know, approaches the, you know, small fan, gives them the sunglasses. And then it's this whole ad for the next generation in WWE, uh, you know, basically, you know, the AEW did their version. They got this little, you know, kid with a mullet, um, which apparently is back in style, Christian. I don't know what the hell's going on with this world, but um, at but this anyway. point, that trend's already getting old. What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, the, this little boy screams for MJF. MJF walks over, hands the kid his scarf, and then whispers in his ear. Uh, as MJF walks off, the kid looks at his dad and says, I'm adopted. Um, <laughs> just fantastic stuff. Uh, you know, MJF comes out to a huge fucking pop, which is expected there in New York. But I mean, I think he'd actually get this pop anywhere, you know, at this point, you know, seeing how he's basically full baby face now. Um, you know, he's rocking just all the New York gear he can possibly be wearing <laughs> with literally every team represented on his fucking you know, jacket. <laughs> um, you know, he's wearing the Mets pinstripes. Uh, yeah, he is 100% babyface. Uh, and I was actually surprised, like, how much of a babyface versus heel situation this was. Because, you know, in a market like New York, you expect Joe to have a certain portion of the audience cheering for him. Uh, rightfully so. But that was not the case here. They were 100% behind MJF. Um, they worked a great match. Um, they had me on the edge of my seat at, at, different points uh joe fucking hit a death valley driver on the ring apron and i honestly thought that was it i thought mjf was going to lose the match uh and i think so did a lot of the audience like they were you know they went quiet for a little bit um but you know mjf ends up prevailing uh by cheating you know he hits a low blow uh -huh. while the referee isn't looking you know with a mule kick uh, he attempts to use the uh, AEW Diamond Ring, but, you know, it gets caught, basically. Uh, but then, you know, Adam Cole comes out while I believe he's in Joe's clutch. Um, apparently having the presence of Adam Cole by his side gave MJF the ability to hulk out of the Kokita clutch. He then turns around and delivers on his promise, and he actually chokes out Samoa Joe. In MJF fashion, of course, with the assist from the wrist tape, uh, you know, the ref was none the wiser. It was actually very similar to what he did to CM Punk, you know, over a year ago at this point. Um, Adam Cole actually helped MJF hide the wrist tape, uh, you know, while they were in the ring celebrating. So the ref didn't see it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the crowd went home happy. Joe actually shook MJF's hand, which I was surprised by. 
Um, and maybe a little disappointed because I was hoping that maybe the program would continue, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, but yeah, no, it was one hell of a fucking grand slam. Also, I'd be remiss not to mention that it seemed like Adam Cole hurt himself uh, running down to the ring. Uh, he jumps off the ramp and he comes up limping, uh, which he ended up limping throughout the remainder of the match while he was out there and actually limped his way up the ramp. So hopefully it's nothing too serious, but the last we heard, it was being reported that he was on his way to the hospital. So, um, Jeez. if he is injured, hopefully it's just a minor injury and he won't be out too long. Um, but this isn't the first time a wrestler got hurt jumping off the ramp. And I'm talking about UCM Punk. Mm-hmm. But before we call it a night, we also got the Rampage spoilers, um, which I mentioned before was a two-hour show taking place uh, directly after uh, Dynamite. I, I think it, they did something similar last year. Uh, but Christian, can you do the honors? Uh, we had Mike Santana defeating the Boulder. Yes, and uh, after the match, this was, I think, Santana's first solo match on his own. Uh, but after the match, um, Ortiz, I guess, had some kind of like face off or stare down with Santana at the top of the ramp. Uh, so it looks like, you know, Santana's first program is going to be against his former partner. Now, there's legitimate beef between these two guys. Um, but it, I got to say, it's kind of refreshing that they're able to put things aside and, you know, you know, make money. It's a legal way of getting to punch each other, right? Think of it that way. Sure. <laughs> uh, up next, I have Hook, Orange Cassidy, and Chris Statlander defeating Anna J, Matt Menard, and Angelo Parker. What are they going by now? Do they have a name? No. Uh, anymore? Okay. They are just fucking blowing in the wind right now. So <laughs> they, they've stayed together as a unit without Jericho. Uh, I'm guessing there's probably a reason behind that. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't come to Jericho's aid or, you know, maybe mm. not. Maybe they turn on him also. Could they just be the appreciation squad without Jericho? Maybe the Don Callis appreciation squad. I don't mm. know. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't show up in one of his oil paintings. After that, we have Darby Allen and Sting defeating Christian Cage and Luchasaurus. Guessing this was probably another Sting party match. I mean, whenever you have a big event like this, it's. You know, it seems like you're guaranteed to have a sting appearance of some sort. So uh -huh. um, I'm sure it was a fun match, though. Uh, the Elite apparently defeated uh, the Mogul Embassies, uh, Brian Cage and the Gates of Agony. Uh, and this was for the Ring of Honor World uh, Six-Man Tag Team Championship. So it's absolutely absurd to me that we had both trios titles being defended on the same fucking show. There are too many championships in AEW right now. If everyone's a champion, no one's a champion, Christian. <laughs> they need to do something about this. I mean, I understand that Tony loves ROH. Um, and we had a brief period where this wasn't happening, where the ROH titles weren't seen on, you know, AEW television. But that is all out the window, and we're back to square one when, like, Tony first originally bought ROH. Um, it's getting a little ridiculous. Uh, they need to do something, especially, like, you don't need two sets of trios belts. Like, if you're going to have, like, ROH belts, like, defended on, you know, 
AWTV, then you you've got to sit there and like merge those titles. Yeah, you know, maybe that's what they're gonna do. I don't know, but the fact that we have the acclaimed also defending their trios belts on this show on Rampage, I mean, it's pretty fucking ridiculous. And so now, like, what, like the lead are gonna be on Ring of Honor TV? Is that what's happening? I guess they're gonna have to sell that, you know. I doubt. It. <laughs> I doubt it. I feel like th- this is gonna be a storyline that's just gonna take place all on Dynamite and Rampage or you know Collision, if you will. Um, but I I could really care less about this. Also, it's odd to me that they actually you know save this for Rampage. They must be really concerned about their their ratings over there. Up next, we had a singles match between Julia Hart and Sky Blue. Julia Hart coming out on top. Yeah, it looks like Julia Hart's going to be the next contender for the uh, TBS title. Um, you know, they showed her after um, after Chris Statlander's match or victory over um, Britt Baker on a collision. So she was sitting in the uh, crowd. So I'm guessing she's up next. I will say this. Julia Hart has the best entrance in AEW right now. At least the best theme song. Check out her theme song on fucking Apple or Spotify. It is pretty fucking amazing. You just don't really get to see it or hear it, you know, because she's always out there with House of Black. I mean, I've heard it a few times when she gets to come out on her own and they have her not, you know, being the manager. But it, it's felt like they've pushed her and Sky Blue a bunch lately um, when it's out, when they're doing matches that aren't, you know, the, the big title matches. I feel like they, they, I mean, Sky Blue is always in the mix, but like Julia, you know, she had like one or two matches on Collision and that was really it. Like they, they kind of forget about her. She gets lost Mm. in the shuffle. I mean, she's really just been kind of like a manager for House of Black of late. So I was a little surprised to see that she was, you know, up next for a title shot. At least that's seemingly where they're headed. Um, but I guess they're probably trying to make sense of that all now with her yeah. getting, you know, the victory over Sky Blue, which whatever. I mean, at least they're doing their due diligence and actually having her win a couple matches before she gets mm-hmm. a final shot. Because, you know, of late on AEW TV, that has not been the case with a lot of these like title matches. Up next, we had a fatal four-way tag team match for the Ring of Honor World Tag Team Championship uh, where the Righteous uh, defeated the Kingdom the and the Best Friends. What? <laughs> yes. The Kingdom aren't getting the fucking title shot against uh, MJF and Adam Cole? Nope. It's going to be the Righteous. What? <laughs> what Russell the Dream, here go- they come. You know? <laughs> that, and that's a pay-per-view match. That makes no sense whatsoever. What the hell? What's going on here? I don't know. I, I maybe they're. I mean, it seems like per usual, you know, AW is going to you know stretch out this storyline for as long as they can. But I, it doesn't make any sense why they wouldn't have the kingdom at this point. To me, I thought. Least. I thought now with you know monthly pay per views because reportedly that's where we're headed. Uh-huh. We weren't going to get these programs superficially stretched out. You know, due to the calendar. Um, what are we fucking doing? Because I'm Don't guessing know. that MJF is not defending the title once again on the pay-per-view. Since he just had a title defense against Joe here. And that pay-per-view is in less than two weeks. So, I don't know, man. I feel like your champion needs to be doing more than defending the ROH you know, tag titles on pay-per-view. Against a team that... 
I mean, no offense to the right, the righteous, the yeah, righteous, the righteous, yeah. You know, no offense to them, but no one really even knows shit about. I mean, they had them pick up a win against the Hardys last week, but I mean, if you're not a hardcore ROH fan, do you really care about the righteous? And do you really even consider them a real threat? Because I have, especially since I haven't been, you know, exposed to them enough over the last, you know, month or so. Like if they were on television, maybe some more and they were building to something because I, I feel like they really only just recently introduced them to the AEW crowd. Yes. Like, no, that's true. I mm-hmm. mean, they've been a staple on ROH TV, but there's not many people watching the ROH show. No. So, I mean, I don't get it. It is what it is. I mean, I hope they have some big picture storyline you know, planned for the kingdom and, you know, strong. Uh, I just felt like that's that's where we're headed, but I guess not. So I'm guessing that they have some pretty big matches planned then for Wrestle Dream because it's pretty rough not having your world title being defended on pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we finished off the night with our six-man tag team match for the AEW World Trios Championships. The Acclaim retained against the Dark Order. I mean, no big surprise. Um, I don't know. I'm glad that the Dark Order at least got a title shot. Uh, I wouldn't mind them eventually winning the Trios belts, though. Um, you know, give them something. You know, I feel like they need to do something for that group. I don't know. Validate them, you know, to the audience. To, to make sense for them to, like, you know still be part of the fucking program because <laughs> otherwise they just lose all the time on tv so um at least they were able to pick up a couple wins you know and kind of get out of adam page's you know shadow um who knows maybe they'll go after the, you know the, the roh trios titles probably i mean they they they're especially now that page them has on them, TV. Right? yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Um, it was definitely a tough sale the last few months where they were trying to get me to believe in them as a heel again, uh, as a heel yeah, faction. Yeah, again. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think they still are supposed to be heels. Uh-huh. So, um, I don't know the the join the dark order promos that they're doing right now aren't helping. They feel real goofy. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to take them seriously. Like after watching, you know, a couple years of them being ridiculous on being the elite. Um, also, did Kenny Omega do a run-in at some point? Did something happen? There was something, right? Yeah. Um, Don Callis had Sammy Guevara and Takeshita attack Chris Jericho. And, of course, uh, Kenny Omega, still having issues with Takeshita, uh, made the save. I uh, wonder if we're headed towards a tag match then. Most likely. I mean, that's... Prob- probably <laughs> Wrestle Dream. My mm, guess. You think at Wrestle Dream? Yeah, I'm guessing. I mean, mm. I would rather have Takeshita versus Omega. Um... But, I mean, this is Tony, right? He's going to stretch this shit out. Especially knowing that we have uh, full gear in November. And then there's a rumor that there's another pay-per-view taking place in December now. So AEW fans, get ready to open up those wallets. I mean, hopefully Tony and Warner Brothers Discovery will be able to hash out a deal. And we'll see all these pay-per-views happening on fucking Max sooner than later. Because... God knows, I don't want to be shelling out this much money every fucking month. <laughs> Especially if your fucking world title's not going to be defended on this pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that does it for this week. As a friendly reminder, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and while you're there, leave a five-star review. 
It really helps new listeners to find the podcast and for us to continue to also, grow. Also, if you like the stories from this week's episode and want to keep up to date with the show, follow us on social media at Amazing Nerd Show or stop by theamazingnerdshow.com. And hey, to support the show further and get additional weekly content, you can subscribe to us now on Patreon. Just follow the link in the show notes. Also, if you want to rep some nerd show swag, you can head over to tpublic.com to find t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd show swag as long as you live in the United States. All right, make sure to join us next week as we talk all the latest news and rumors in nerd culture. And whatever's going on in the world of wrestling. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter.